In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel 29. David, the fugitive king-in-waiting who's hiding amongst his enemies, finds himself in a tight spot as he and his men march with the Philistines to attack Israel. But the Philistine lords don't trust him, and probably for good reason, because his loyalty still lies with Yahweh. So they appeal to King Achish to send he and his men away. And thus David avoids having to fight his own people. But this isn't the end of David's troubles with the Philistines or the other enemies of God. Good morning and blessed Pentecost season. Today is Thursday, June 8th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. We give thanks to God for the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, whose generous contributions help support Thy Strong Word. LHF is a ministry which provides Lutheran resources in various languages. You can visit them online to learn more at lhfmissions.org. Well, folks, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning to help us divide and discern and explore 1 Samuel chapter 29. It's the Reverend Jacob Herkamp, pastor of St. Peter Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Missouri. Good morning, Pastor Herkamp, and welcome to the program. Good morning to you, and thank you very much on this fine, beautiful morning. It's wonderful to be in the Word uh, with you today. Well, I'm excited to have you on. Now, I know that you've been on KFUO before on Concord Matters, uh, but this is your first time on Thy Strong Word, and I'm certainly pleased to have you here. But since it's your first time, one of the things I like to do for my sake and for the audience's sake is give you a chance to talk a little bit about yourself uh, maybe what God's doing through you and your ministry and your congregation or anything else you'd like to share. Uh, um, yeah. Tell us about who Pastor Herkamp is. Yeah, so I've been uh, a, I was a student at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, um, graduated with my STM in 2017 and have served St. Peter Lutheran Church, LaGrange, Missouri ever since. And um, we've been here now going on six years. My Actual or ordination anniversary is June 8th or June 4th, excuse me. And um, that was, uh, we're looking forward to that. And um, it's been a fun, fun six years to watch how the Lord has uh, grown me and uh, allowing me to work in the congregation here. LaGrange is about 35 miles north of Hannibal, uh, Missouri. So we are in Mark Twain country and uh, very blessed to be the most northern congregation in Northeast Missouri uh, before you get to Iowa. So we have a very large, expansive area that our congregation serves. And so we have people driving from about 45, 45 miles away to come to the Lutheran Church here in LaGrange. Wow, fascinating. Now, um, let's see here. You're in, I'm just trying to think of where you are in relation to me, because I'm in the southwest corner of Minnesota, so we're, we're pretty far from each So we're other. from... So we're right on um, US 61, or the Avenue of the Saints. So we're directly south of St. Paul. Oh, okay, sure, sure. Okay, so just about a few hours away. Yeah, so well, the, Nat- the National Youth Gathering, we took the, the bus, and it was a, <laughs> a, a six-hour drive. Oh, okay, well, that's good. Well, you mentioned that you got your STM. Now, I know what that means, but maybe the people at home don't. Explain to people what, what that is. So at Fort Wayne, there is, you have the Master of Divinity, which, which typically every pastor has uh, in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod after four years of study. Um, I was a student who desired to receive a second master's, which is commonly referred to as the STM, but it's a master's of sacred theology. And so that involved me sticking around for one more year. And I was blessed to work with and alongside the professors of the systematic department there at Fort Wayne, and uh, that's the dogmatic theology and and the like. So um, Dr. David Scare, Dr. Ziegler, uh, Dr. Masaki there at Fort Wayne. And um, during that time, I wrote a larger paper, a thesis on the book of Isaiah, and especially Isaiah chapter 25. And so I was awarded that degree in 2017 and then was ordained there following. 
Well, that's wonderful. Now, I also happen to know that you're working on your Ph.D. What's your research emphasis? Do you have a, a, a well, I, I think you've been in it for a while, so certainly you have a topic by now. Yes. Um, my, my hope is to write on the prophet of Zechariah, and in particular, the uh, crowning of Joshua as the high point or theological center of that book, and um, to um, extol the uh, priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ, showing how Christ in the Gospels um, shows himself to be a priest prior to him being a king, kind of following the book of Zechariah. Uh, the crowning of Joshua is kind of in the center, and on the back end of the book, you have all the the pictures, the images of the good shepherd or the king coming, riding on a on a colt. Um, and in the Gospels, you see the continuation of Jesus working as a priest, even going up to the cross, and only then being called king there in a mocking way. But then on the backside of his resurrection, he is speaking to his disciples, saying that all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. And so there is, I think, an argument to be made to talk more about Christ's priesthood and his earthly ministry um, in context of what Zechariah has to say and proclaim. Well, that sounds great. When we cover Zechariah, I'll have to make sure that I have you on the show. I'd love to be on there. Yeah, it sounds like maybe we'll have you even open the book. But for now, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 29, and yesterday we covered the Witch of Endor, which is one of my favorite subjects. Today, I don't want to say the text is less exciting, (laughs) but it is uh, quite a bit shorter. Um, But, you know, there's still so much to dig into about it. Um, So I can't wait to dive in. But before we do, I'd like to invite you to start our time off together with a prayer. Let us pray. Lord God, bless your word wherever it is read and proclaimed. Make it a word of power and of peace to convert those not yet your own and to confirm those who have come to saving faith. May your word pass from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip, and from the lip to the life. As you have promised, your word may achieve the purpose for which you have sent it. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. So yesterday, as I said, in chapter 28, we talked, we focused mostly on the medium or witch of Endor, however you want to say it. But actually, our text for today begins in chapter 28. The first two verses of 28 are then, um, then, then I guess, are interrupted. The narrative is interrupted by Samuel's death and Saul seeking out a medium to conjure up uh, uh, Samuel. But now, really, 29.1 is picking up right after uh, Samuel 28.1 and 2. So I just want to read those real quick, back to 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. And then it picks up today with the first verse of 29. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and we'll read that in a minute. But I just wanted to make that connection. So uh, tell us, brother, how did we get here? For those who maybe are just joining us for the first time or who missed the past couple episodes, how did David get to be the bodyguard of the king of the Philistines, his enemies. Well, this isn't the first time that David uh, sought refuge in Philistine-occupied territory. He did it a couple of times. He did it once before to get away from Saul um, before, and now we have it again, but it's even more amplified. David, at the first time, just found a place to kind of hide out in the Philistines. Um, and they allowed it for a little bit of time. But here, David has endeared himself to Achish and the other Philistines, which is really funny and ironic. Um, And we're going to get into that here a little bit. But David has endeared himself so much to Achish now that he's going to serve in this way. And David has already been seen or at least heard of um, raiding on behalf of the Philistines. 
if we go back, I believe it's what well, a chapter is that, um, chapter 27, we have him fleeing to the Philistines the second time. He's afraid of Saul, of course. Saul has been running after him um, like you're running after a dog. And we can find plenty of, of Psalms that corroborate this time period of David's life where he is being chased down by Saul. And we have the Philistines being this place of refuge for him, which is kind of an interesting idea. It's kind of also um, what happens with Jesus in the flight down to Egypt. Egypt has become the place of refuge for the Son of God. So a place that was once Israel's enemies is now the place where um, Jesus takes up refuge. David also takes up refuge in, in an enemy camp um, for a period of time um, while the Lord is working to bring about his own vindication. So I hope that kind of helps, but that's, that's right. 1 Samuel 27 um, gives us that um, background of David running away from Saul and um, finding, him, finding himself in, um, in league with the Philistines, and Achish is letting him live in Ziklag, um, taking up that city um, as his own and getting to do basically whatever he wants um, as a raiding band. Now, he's not hitting Judah or any Israelites, but he's certainly going around and making sure that nobody can uh, tell Achish that he's not hitting up uh, Judah and other, um, other towns and um, the, the Israelite countryside. So he's kind of like a, a double agent, right? I mean, he's hiding amongst the Philistines. He's using that opportunity to attack the other enemies of God's people, the surrounding nations. But as you said, and I think that's also back in 27, yeah, he's, he's doing it in such a way that, you know, well, the king thinks he's fighting for him. In fact, he thinks that if he's attacking the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, as they would say, as much as, as I think he is, they must hate him by now. He's going to be a loyal servant of me. But I do yeah. want to bring up one quick thing, though. Uh, it, it hasn't been too long since he was drooling and scratching the walls, acting mad in front of, of uh, Akish, or, or however we say it, Akish. So how, I guess, the, I guess his attitude or his opinion of David has clearly changed over time. Well, and this is in 27. Um, he says at the very beginning, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer with the borders, within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So he arose and went um, with the 600 men to Achish, uh, king of Gath, and he lives there. And I have a feeling that David, well, chapter, verse 5, if I found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me. So I'm curious. This is just me speculating a little bit. I wonder if David went out and did a raid that maybe uh, got, got into the ears of Achish. And, and Achish was like, well, he's now made himself a stench. Um, he's an abhorrence to the people of Israel. So he might as well live with me and be my, be my guy, be my servant, which is verse 12. So I'm curious to kind of wonder if David maybe have maybe went out and did or performed a raid um, within the earshot of Achish before he showed up. And Achish was like, well, he's, he certainly has uh, uh, relinquished any affinity for Israel, and Israel doesn't like him anymore, so he'll, he'll be a great guy for me. Well, it makes sense. He's done something that's certainly won the favor of this guy. So now we're back in chapter 29, our text for today, and I'm going to read the first, uh, the first few verses to get us started. As I said before, this continues from 28.2. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is Je in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? 
And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back. And we're going to pause right there, sort of in the middle of verse 4. So, yeah, so they're, they're passing on by hundreds and by thousands, which in and of itself shows the mighty force that they are mustering against the Israelites. And David and his men, his 600 troops, are coming up the rear with the king. Now, I guess it's not insignificant that the king is going to be in the back. Uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe, you know, we, we talk about whether kings lead from the front or lead from the back. But it, it is very significant, at least in the eyes of the Philistine commanders or lords, that, you know, I don't know if I trust this little band of mercenaries to be on the back. We'll have Saul in the front, and then we'll have David in the back. It just doesn't sound like it's going to be a good setup. No, they, they know what's—they they smell something funny, um, for sure. And what is really interesting, too, is the play on words. So in chapter or chapter 29, verse 3, when the commanders um, are looking on, they're watching these men come passing by. And it's almost a, it's the verb of, of var. Um, so to, to be passing on in review of. And so they're passing by. And then you have the Hebrews, which is another, um, it's a play of a veer um, and, and the like. So you have, Abrim and Abrim happening at the same time. You have the Philistines passing by in review, and then they realize, oh, there's more Hebrews here too. This is really weird um, to have um, the guys that we're going to fight against in our own camp. Um, and so the, the commanders realize this is probably a really bad idea. And then Akish really hilariously um, makes the point of saying, hey, is this not David, the servant of Saul? That's the guy you're trying to go kill right now. Right, like I can it, vouch for him. He's uh, he's on the side of the guy we're going to fight. No, that, yeah, it's, it, it doesn't make any sense. And I mean, Akish could have said, well, dude, he's already uh, made made so many enemies in Israel. Like he's he's had chances to kill Saul. He's, you know, and he's made all kinds of, problems for Israel and Saul. He doesn't, he doesn't like Saul. Um, but here he says he is a servant of David and then our servant of Saul, excuse me, David's a servant of Saul. And then you have that king of Israel. Well, the question is, is whether or not that refers to Saul, which I tend to think it does. But at the same time, David has already been um, anointed by God uh, to be the next prince of Israel. And um, certainly, the we know we have known from First Samuel fifteen that the kingdom has been stripped from Saul. This Saul is trying with all his might to hold on to something that's just falling through his fingers. He's trying to grasp at oil um, to keep his kingdom alive. Um, even chasing down David, the one he knows is going to um, become king after him, and. It's, it's quite funny just to hear this happen um, with Achish, where he's vouching for David the way he is, and even says, I have found no fault in him to this day, which when you think about moving into the New Testament, you have Achish, which is technically a, a Philistine. He is an enemy of the people of God. And you have Pilate, who is also an enemy of the people of God in the New Testament, the empire of Rome, speaking of Jesus, I have found no fault in him. He is innocent. You have that really interesting connection uh, between wow. the two um, kings, if you want to say emperors, kings, governors of the, of the land, according to the, the world leadership. And they are speaking of David and of Jesus. I have found no fault in him to this day. Now that is kind of interesting because when I, the couple things that stood out to me in the way that Akish was responding to his commanders is uh, the things that you brought up already. That is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel? 
I agree. I think King is referring to Saul, not David. Although grammatically you could play with that, right? You know, is this not David, the servant of Saul, David, who also happens to be the king of Israel? The other thing that stood out to me is it says, who has been with me now for days and for years. I don't know how much time has passed since chapter 27, 7, but back then it said that he had been there a year and four months. So it's getting on. But the I have found no fault in him to this day, that just sort of stood out to me like kind of like Eli and Saul himself, that this guy is just not a good judge of character. And not that David has a bad character, but for being a king, you figure he would have learned to be a little bit more protective. David, as you said, he could have pointed to all the ways that he's become a stench to his own people, but at the same time, David has turned, well, I should say the the Israelites, rather, not David necessarily, but the Israelites have fought with the Philistines and then turned against them in mid-battle before. So, you know, there's there's lots of reasons why he should probably continue to be suspicious. And of course, we know the end of the story, so we tend to jump to it and say, well, you know, we have hindsight, I guess, and we go, well, you know, obviously David, for him, should be a pretty unreliable character. But as you've already pointed out, we don't know. We don't know what David's done to to convince him. Actually, we know a little bit that what he's done to convince him that he's faithful to him. But I just want to now bring out, when you say, I found no fault with him and connect that to Pilate and Jesus, that's something I hadn't considered. And I think that's a great point because we see that happening all the time with David uh, pointing forward, of course, to Jesus. Well, we're going to see just in a few minutes, the commanders, we have that, you know, send the man back. Right. We already have, we've already read that. Send the man back. We don't want this guy, even if he is um, wonderful. Right. Um, and um, the, the commanders, the, the governors of the Philistines, which are really the kings of the other, of the other cities, um, are angry with Achish for even considering the idea. And I think you're right to say that, yeah, well, we already have another background story of the Israelites originally fighting with the Philistines and then turning on them. So not this, they, they, they're re, they, they know what's going on or they see what could be coming um, for them. And then they don't want, they have no desire to have David around. Pure speculation, but I, I don't, I wouldn't put it past this King's pride to just think that he has won over the future king of Israel. He's, you know, he he takes pride in that he's flipped David to his side, the same guy who took the head of Goliath and is well known for that amongst all the nations. And I think there's something there. I think there's probably a little bit of pride clouding his judgment, if I can. I I fully agree with that idea with him. If you know, if 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 Achish was able to take Saul down, Who's the perfect person to put on the throne of Israel and make him your servant? Right. It's David. Well, so. let's, let's read a four now in, in its totality. So here we go. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how can this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Pausing there, just a moment. You know what? Let's not pause. Let's, let's do five, because it's obviously important. Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Okay, this is like the third time that this has been brought up about David, uh, by somebody other than David, right? David didn't want people to be singing this, but this, the women singing back and forth, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. When we first covered this, I and I tended to agree, my guest suggested that this wasn't trying to really outrank David over Saul. Basically, it was just a, um, a, a way of poetically talking about both of their greatness. And perhaps you disagree, and I'd love to hear that. But the point is, David uh, has ex- has experienced a lot of animosity from Saul, kind of started by this chant, and it keeps being thrown up in his face again and again. 
and he he had nothing to do with this. Um, but I, I love the language then, because what does this connect to? Goliath, where they say, would it not be with the heads of the men here? The king may have forgotten or forgiven, but boy, they don't they don't forget the fact that he hauled the head of Goliath into King Saul and won his favor that first time. Oh, that's that's very true. I was um, taking that, referring back to um, how David received Michael, uh, Saul's Saul's daughter, as his first wife. Um, the foreskins of the Philistines as well, um, because you have you have those two instances where Saul gives David his favor, right? All of that's and all of it's combined, um, because he kills he kills uh, Goliath and then. He asks Saul for the hand of Michael, and then Saul says, go and get me a hundred Philistine foreskins. Um, it's all the same thing, right? Because he's, right. He's, he, he is getting um, or receiving favor from Saul in this way. And I think you're completely right um, with, the, with the song, right? David did not start this chant. Um, and I look at it from the perspective of Saul is the one who sent David out. So all of these, all of these thousands and ten thousands, technically, um, should go under the column of Saul, if that makes sense. Since he is the king and he is the one who is overseeing, who is the general? Right. I um, mean, well, the question... even even with those numbers, thousands and ten thousands, Saul had never killed thousands, and David had yeah. certainly not killed ten thousands. Saul yeah. gets the credit because he's the king. Yeah, it's, that's that's how it should be, and that's. If you recall, um, in the turn the, the when David becomes king after the whole Bathsheba episode, Joab is out at Rabbah, and they have taken the city, and he sends word back to David, "Hey, if you want this credit, come here before they make me something." Um, when right. Joab is there, he he reminds David, "You need to be the king." show up here so that they know it's you who are who's taking this kingdom not me um and so i wonder if this may be a something to that effect where saul should be around for all of these um for all these victories and it should be saul's but saul hears this um and begins to have that animosity because it's not saul's killed his ten thousands no david has killed his ten thousands um and then each time that this is used, it's never used in praise of David. Right. It's always used, like you said, to like an animosity towards him. Saul uses this as his uh, motivation to chase David down. And then it's used again in the same fashion um, against David. And now here, the, the Philistines are, are bringing this back. We've heard this about him. He's going in. They're remembering how many people of the Philistines he has killed. In particular, and you're right to remind us of, of Goliath um, in particular, since he was the champion um, of, of all the Philistines. So it is quite a interesting thing um, to look at, knowing that they, they like I said, we, we have the, the gift of hindsight, but we also can see how the, the men around Achish see see the writing on the wall, and Achish is completely blind to it. Willfully blind, if you ask me. And you know, it's so funny, because David's, I guess, positive reputation continues to bite him in the rear end, and we see that happening again here. But you know what? We're going to keep on going with this text, but it's time to take a break. Folks, do not go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Herkamp and I will keep on going through 1 Samuel chapter 29. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, 
go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend Jacob Herkamp, pastor of St. Peter Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Missouri. Thank you for joining us this morning. I certainly pray that God blesses you through our study of 1 Samuel 29. Now, if you know someone who might like the show, be sure to let them know of all the ways that they can tune in. And this is good information for you, too. You can listen on the air in St. Louis at AM850, or you can listen live or on demand at kfuo.org, or anyone can hear the program as a podcast, either on KFUO's own mobile app, or you can just subscribe to Thy Strong Word on your favorite podcasting platform. And another great way to tune in is if you have a smart speaker, just ask it to tune in to KFUO. As always, I'm able to answer any questions you have or hear your feedback. You can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Facebook. Just drop by and say hello. Thanks so much for tuning in. Now back to our text. Pastor, before the break, we had just ended up on the whole idea that David's reputation, although positive and perhaps even intended to be positive toward King Saul, has been kind of a thorn in his side. Now, I don't want to stretch a point too much, but I can't help about even the things that Jesus did did that were um, obviously good, like healing the sick, healing Peter's mother-in-law. Once the news got out, it kind of became a little bit of a thorn in his side. It caused him to be not only surrounded by people who were seeking maybe just worldly healing, but also it erased the ire of his enemies uh, before the time was right. Uh, do you see a connection there at all, or maybe am I stretching it? Oh, I, I totally see the connection. Um, David David is the consummate suffering servant king in the Old Testament, um, being anointed and then being chased by by Saul, the worldly king, I guess you could call him, um, and, and the like. And even now with David in the midst of more enemies um, of God's people, he is seen as this enemy, enemy person. Um, and Jesus certainly has that same suffering um, ha- happening to him to a much greater degree. Uh, Jesus seems to even bring this out when he's speaking about uh, himself and John the Baptist. Um, when he says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you called him a glutton, um, a drunkard and a glutton. Mm. Um, the, the things that the world would probably have enjoyed um, of most people, they, they despised of, of Jesus. Um, so even when, you know, think about when uh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, well, the people weren't excited. Uh, There's a lot of people who were excited about it, but the enemies of Jesus, the, the, uh, the Jews in particular, the, the leaders of, of the party, um, certainly were not thrilled with what was happening, and they were looking to kill both Jesus and Lazarus for what Jesus had done, uh, instead of rejoicing in that. So certainly uh, there is that connection, the, the typological connection between David and Jesus when it comes to this, this season of David's life with the suffering servant aspect, and Jesus certainly picks that up uh, much more, and there's no place for the Son of Man to lay even his head. Um, I think that plays right with what David's been experiencing during this time between his anointing and then Saul um, coming to chase him down. Those are amazing connections, and, and it's just, it is, it continues to be amazing to see how the scriptures all genuinely point to Jesus. And sometimes, you know, I think we, I, and I've said this on the program before, and hopefully I haven't offended anyone, but sometimes I think we jump to Jesus too soon, like we don't get the the historical context. We don't get what's going on in the in the now. What's going on with Saul and David? But then there are times when I think we don't notice that that Jesus is being pointed to, and, and so you don't really have to go into 
crazy allusions to try to shoehorn Jesus into the Old Testament. Here we have clear connections to who David really was a type of, a representative of, uh, uh, and, and who Jesus is. And, and what happens next is kind of interesting, too, because now uh, Achish, who is the, the king of Gath, and, and he's, he's, this, he's, he's really enamored with David, and, and what he says next is very strange, and I think how we take it depends on our point of view. I don't know if it's clear, but here we go. Verse 6. Then Achish called David, and he said to him, As Yahweh lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out in and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you, so go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Obviously, what stands out to me is we have this Philistine king calling upon the name of Yahweh. Mm -hmm. That's that is true. We we have it right there. As the Lord lives, the question that we typically get bogged down in is whether or not Achish actually believes in Yahweh or being a polytheist um, is just appeasing uh, David by invoking the name of of the Lord God, Yahweh, um, for David or and the like. But either way, he is using the personal name of the Lord um, there. In your English, you're always going to see uh, the personal name all in all caps, all capital letters. Um, but that is the personal name, the tetragrammaton, um, Yahweh. And um, he, he doubles down on in front of David saying, here we have... Um, you have only been um, good in my sight. Um, and um, it is quite an uh, interesting thing when he says, go back now. He's, he's, depart he's telling him to depart in peace. Go, go peaceably right. or, or in, in shalom um, so that you're not going to displease the, the, the lords of the Philistines. And you're not, if you do leave, um, you won't make me look bad. Um, in front of them either. So, um, sorry for bringing you into this, uh, but I really wanted you here, and I know that you would be a good servant of mine, yet uh, you're not approved of. Yeah, a lot of ink has been spilled on whether or not um, um, Achish has become a follower of Israel's God, Yahweh. But as you rightfully point out, and as I pointed out many times, they usually do believe in Yahweh. They don't have a problem with that. As polytheists, they just put Yahweh on the shelf with the rest of them. Um, it's, it's not as though he's going to disavow all his gods and become a faithful follower of Yahweh. And, well, and, there's, a, and there's a courtesy here, too, of course. You know, he's going to appeal to the god of this particular person. Mm -hmm. And we need to remember, we're not that far away from the days of when the Ark of the Covenant was running around the five cities of the Philistines, and they brought, the, they brought it into the temple of Dagon. And what happened to Dagon back in 1 Samuel 4? Right. Is it 4 or 5? I can't remember. Um, but we have the Ark of God in the presence of Dagon, and Dagon gets completely obliterated um, after two days. And they have to at least also remember, and they know this, they know this better than um, the Israelites themselves and believe it more. They know why, um, they know that Yahweh exists. They know him better than Israel does because they, they have heard the stories of his time in, in Egypt. Yep. And they look to that a lot more than the Israelites ever do um, in, in, this, in this book of Samuel. Um, or at least they, they express belief in, in what God has done uh, for, for Israel in all of those things. So I have no doubt that Achish knows and believes that Yahweh exists. Um, whether or not he has put his full trust and faith in him, that's a whole other question. But no doubt that he certainly knows of Yahweh and knows him to exist. Absolutely. You know, and they were passing around that ark like a hot potato. <laughs> and yes. Because they, nobody wanted to be stuck with it, and they send it back. 
And yeah. we see that a lot. We see the enemies of God's people, and you brought up such a great point. We see the enemies of God's people often talking about, you know, yeah, we have our gods and they have their God, but boy, their God's powerful because he actually does stuff. And yeah. of course, we look back and go, well, yeah, because he's the only God. But even they recognize that sometimes more than the Israelites themselves. And this next section is pretty ironic when he says, uh, so uh, you have done, I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. If we were again to jump back to 27, even verse 8 says, now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites and the Gizarites and the Amalekites, for these are the inhabitants of the land, so as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David, as you already pointed out earlier, wouldn't leave anybody alive, would take all the animals and then come back to Achish. And when he would ask, he would, well, deceive him. He would say against the Negeb of Judah or against the Negeb of the Yeharim. Oh, I, sh I should have pre-read that. Against the Negeb of the Kenites. He would, he would, uh, uh, he would say, uh, I'm fighting so-and-so to give him the idea that he was on his side. So David had been literally deceiving him. Uh, but of course, he speaks the truth here. He says, I have found nothing wrong in you. Well, that's again, we've talked about why that might be, but it's certainly an ironic statement. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. Interesting, the politics going on here in uh, the, the land of the Philistines, that, that he's worried about the approval of the commanders or the lords or the elders of the Philistines. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, this is um, kind of the—I mean, I, there's, a, there's a good reason for that. Um, but at the same time, if you do want to go to the, um, to the idea—I mean, David is the Lord's anointed. So if you're not with David— um on these things um you're against god um right. in one way or another right and here i think now i have no idea we we know how the story ends david um, does not go with them um but um akish or akish however you want to call his name um seems to side with the uh with the rest of his lords because he doesn't want to lose favor with them um at least that's how I read it as I oh, yeah. go through this. Akish is afraid of what may transpire uh, for him after the fact. So, David, please just go. I like you, but I can't deal. <laughs> I can't. I can't be with you. You can't ride with me. There's no that's room right. for you in my in my cohort anymore. Um, not even on the back burner. Um, and so here is. And maybe this is probably a stretch, and I apologize, but I like to speculate a little bit. I wonder if this is also part of that continuation of the suffering servants. Jesus, hey, Jesus, we love you, but we love you, but that's right. Um, the lords, the lords of the world, don't approve of you. Boy, isn't isn't that something we struggle with today? I mean, so often, even those who have their faith, hope, and trust in Christ find themselves being tempted anyway to to side on the side of the world who says, you know, well, you might like him and you might trust him, but we don't we don't like him and we're going to cause problems for you if you continue to be faithful to him. And that that is a temptation of all Christians. It is. David it responds is. a little bit in um <laughs> I mean it adds to the irony because David then responds incredulously. It says in verse 8 and David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Now before we get to how Achish responded, that in itself is it could be very well a loaded question. I mean, what have I done? David knows what he's done, but it's sort of it's sort of like in criminal law. It doesn't matter what you've done. It matters what they can prove. <laughs> and so That's he says, oh, yeah, totally. what, what have you found in your servant from the day I entered? Uh, but then he says this interesting phrase that he wants to go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king. Who's he talking about? I, he's certainly, at the very least, wanting Akish to, to believe that he's talking about him. He's referring to him as his lord and king. But does 
but he's called Saul that plenty of times. Uh, of course, the God, God is the the true Lord and King. Right? Samuel I, warned everybody about that. So is David um, being a little manipulative here? Oh, David is is um, he, it is a rich. I, it's it's completely rich on to the nth degree of David speaking on multiple levels. Right? He he certainly wants Achish to know, hey, I want to go with you, but that, like you said, the enemies of my Lord, the King. If you read the entire book of 1 Samuel, I want to say there's only one place. I did this for a, for a paper for one of my classes on the historical books, and I wrote on this um, for a class. But I want to say that there's only one place where God ever speaks of the human, the, of, of humans, serving as a king. He doesn't, he never speaks to David except for until after his episode with Bathsheba. He does mention, I made you king there. Um, But everywhere else, he calls them princes. And the word, the king, I wonder if it goes, goes back to Yahweh. And technically speaking, you think about Saul at this point, Saul technically is an enemy of the Lord God. Because he is, right. he is fighting against the will of God in one way, right? He is chasing down the one whom God anointed to be the prince of his people, Israel, to shepherd his people. Um, and Saul certainly does not want to uh, give that up, right? I mean, we can go back to Psalm or the, the first Samuel 15, and we'll see over and over again how many times Saul is grasping for for the opportunity to make amends um, without repentance, of course. But he, he says he sins, but he never really shows full repentance, in my opinion. Um, well, it's, it sounds like if you were uh, among the editors of the ESV, you would capitalize. I would, have, I would have capitalized that. I think I, I would have at least put a footnote in saying, yeah. hey, this, this reads in this way, um, or at least allows for this understanding. Akish, technically speaking, is fighting against someone who has ransacked the kingdom of Israel, Saul, and has roughshodded it. And now it's time for the, the true leader of Israel to take his place. And this wouldn't be the first or the last time that God uses the enemies of his people to exercise judgment. Exactly. So it is this, it's, it's, very, it's very rich in the irony, um, mm-hmm. because David can literally say, hey, I haven't done anything. Um, like, I'm blameless before you, buddy. Um, and I've only helped you because technically speaking, like destroying the, the Geshurites and the Kenites and the like, what's that, what's that do? Oh, well, it actually helps the Philistines a little bit because their territory expands. Right. It doesn't, doesn't say that Judah took it over. It says, you know, it just means like, oh, well, I have no more enemies on that side of me for the time being. That's really good. Thank you, David. I wonder where the Kenites are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Um, see, and folks, this is irony in the truest sense, where you say one thing but mean another, not in the Alanis Morissette sense, where things are just inconvenient or (laughs) coincidental. Exactly. So this is true irony, and we see that in the Scripture. We see it beautifully woven into the Gospel of John, one of my favorite books, um, but yeah, we see this, and it, it, I don't think it's reading into it because you see that this stuff plays out. The enemies, you know, I that I may not go. Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the King? Well, David was to exercise judgment over Saul. Of course, he avoided killing Saul directly because he says, "I'm going to." respect the office, I'm going to honor the, uh, the anointed of the Lord, but God will use uh, David to bring justice to Israel. At the same time, we have it, all these, you know, he's playing 4D chess here because he doesn't owe anything to Achish, so in his sight, he certainly hasn't done anything wrong. Even if he were to attack his own people, he wouldn't be doing anything wrong because he doesn't owe anything to him. He only owes his loyalty to Yahweh. But yeah, and there's the this is the great theological point. I mean, David back in First Samuel twenty six nine speaks about the situation where he has Saul dead to rights if he wants him, 
And he says, do not destroy him, Saul, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? So again, like you just said, he, he, he um, respects the office um, of king. He knows that Saul is still, politically speaking, the king. He knows that he himself has been anointed. Um, but Yahweh is working uh, through the Philistines, through these governors who realize, hey, this is a bad idea. They even think about bringing a Hebrew into this mix right now. Um, who has been on the outs with his quasi-king, whom you just called him a servant of, um, and we're going to send him home. And Yahweh is working through all of that to make sure that you can't call David the guy who killed Saul. Well, and, and I was getting ready to say, that reminds me of, and I'm sure this is part of what you're referencing, um, of Abigail. Right, yeah. because because you know he was going, he was upset. He was he going was going to kill her husband, <laughs> kill her husband, yeah. and she stops him, and he literally says, "Thank you for stopping me from sinning." And yeah. then, of course, God then gets judgment over her husband, and then he marries Abigail. So, you well, know, times, here's, times here's have changed. But here's the next verse. So this is First Samuel twenty. I read twenty six nine, and then twenty six ten. He says he confesses the Lord will strike him. Um, or his day will come to die, or he will go down in battle and perish. That's what David has to say about the fact that Saul, yes, I, I have him dead to rights if I so choose to, to kill him myself right now. But right. it's not my job. That's not what God's told me to do. I'm not, I'll let the Lord deal with it. I will be vindicated and be guiltless. I'll be justified effectively. Um, Which demonstrates his faithfulness to God's revealed will because, I mean, it would be pretty easy, I think, to convince someone that, look, you're standing over him. There's literally a weapon right here. This is, and this is what his, uh, the person who was with him said, this is God's will. God's giving him into your hands. This is the opportunity. A and, and David knows better. Indeed. Indeed. Well, back in our text, you know, in, in verse 9, after he <laughs> is indignant to Achish, Achish responds, and he says, And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So, uh, interesting turn of phrase here, um, where he says, you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. We've heard that a couple times, it's been a few few chapters, but um, why why the flowery, flowery language here from Achish? I think it's simply to make sure that he, that David, it's kind of like, like I, we were just talking about, I love you, David, you're great. And this is how I look at you, but it's those guys who are having the problem, um, with you. Um, and so, yeah, you are as perfect as an angel. Um, and, uh, because we, we talk like that sometimes about our own children, right? Um, and we know that they're not. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but I think Akish is really trying to just lather on like, hey, like, don't, please don't be mad at me. I look at you like this, buddy. I, I see you as blameless. Uh, but I can't, I can't have you mess up uh, my relationship with the rest of my, of my cohort. I, I don't want to um, dwell on it, but I do have a question. So the word here is malak, which just means messenger, of course. Um, in the context, we understand it to be an angel. When he says angel of God, is he referring to, say, the the messengers of Yahweh that he knows about? Or is there a concept of angels and messengers in in these other um, religious traditions? I, I, I don't know. Maybe you don't know either. But I, I don't curious. have a good answer for that, but it's not like— angel of the Lord here. It's not Melech Yahweh, uh, right. but it's Melech Elohim. Um, or Elo yeah, Melech, uh, yeah, Elohim. And so 
Um, and so it's not it's not the same phrase as the angel of the Lord, um, sure. which would be more fascinating. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. But that uh, preach for sure. Had, but, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But the um, and then then you have a much much more um, hardcore typological uh, connection. But being him being as blameless as he is. Um, in the sight of Akish. I, I'm curious. I don't know either yeah, if there's yeah. any angels in um, the Philistine religion or not, but um, it, is, it is interesting simply because we don't have, I can't think of anywhere else in the story of David wrapped up my head. I didn't, I didn't go back and look at that phrase that hard, um, but it is an interesting phrase to think about. But I just simply um, took it as a, another like an adjectival um, phrase simply describing David um, and, you know, you're, you're, you're blameless and you might as well be an angel in my eyes. So. Yeah, and I, and I think I think you're absolutely right. I don't think there's too much to dig into it, but it's just one of those things that pops in your head as you're reading it, and you're just like, "No, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, yeah. how would he know David's about— David's not an angel, but yeah. How would he know about angels or—but yeah. yeah. Well, the commander of the Philistines are pretty upset, and so he finally gives in, and he says, he says just, well, in the morning, first light, I want you and your guys to return. And he does. He returns to the land of the Philistines. We know from the first verse of chapter 30 that when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day. Can you share a little bit about where that is and, well, what it is? That's from whence he so, came, and now he's heading back. So Ziklag, um, I don't have exactly where it is, but Ziklag is in the land of the Philistines. It's the city that he asked to have um, in the land of the Philistines. It was a city that he's like, hey, I have 600 men. I need a town um, for, my, for my operations. And they, they allow that because, I think, of the raiding that he's already accomplished um, for, on, on behalf of the Philistines. Um, causing such a stench to Israel, or at least that's what Achish believes. Um, and so he gives him this, this city of Ziklag. And um, that's where all of, his, all of his wives, Abigail and a few other wives, um, end up there. And all the, men, all the men of his 600 and their families show up in that town as well. It is interesting to note that it is in the early morning um, that he leaves. Um, so it kind of... Res- takes us back to, say, um, the early morning trip that um, Abraham and Isaac kind of began, but that's a whole nother story. It's just that early start in the early morning. Um, and then um, he does go, he does leave um, to return to the land of the Philistines, to the land of quasi-exile. He did this to himself, but it is a land that is not the promised land. Um, and but he is waiting for his vindication. Um, and so here you have um, the Philistines going up to Jezreel. Jezreel is the city that would become a wintering capital for the later dynasty of Omri. So that'd be um, Second Kings. Um, you're going to hear of Omri and specifically the stories of Ahab and Jezebel. They are in that, or Ahab is a son of Omri. And um, Jezreel or Jezreel is the place of his wintering capital, and it's there that uh, Ahab is all saddened by Naboth. Um, if you recall that story of Naboth's vineyard, Ahab wants to um, receive that vineyard for himself. Um, Naboth says no, and Jezebel takes care of it for him. Um, so Jezreel has a place in the rest of Scripture later on. Um, that uh, gets remembered and then um, displays a picture of Christ as well. So Jezreel um, here is just a location where the men of Saul's army is um, stationed up um, for the time, but Jezreel has a continual significance going forward. Ziklag, on the other hand, while David lives there um, for this period of time, is where he um, resides while in, Philist- in the Philistine country. And um, you'll have to talk about the rest of chapter 30 next time we and what will. happens at Ziklag. But it is cool that he shows up on the third day. And that third day, of course, starts the 
continues the pattern of important things that occur on the third day. Lots of good stuff to look forward to, but today we're at the end of our program, so I'd like to thank my guest, the Reverend Jacob Herkamp, pastor of St. Peter Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Missouri. Pastor, thanks so much for being on the show. My absolute pleasure. God's blessings. Folks, join us tomorrow for Chapter 30. As you've heard, David returns to his base in Ziklag only to find it in ashes and his family and followers kidnapped by the Amalekites, the other sworn enemies of God. David's men are devastated. They blame him for their loss. So David cries out to God, and God tells him to pursue the raiders and promises him victory. But you'll learn that and more tomorrow. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.